0: What's up guys, thanks
1: for tuning in to the Sardine Podcast. Hey, welcome to Sardine Talks. We're back with a new series of interviews. This year we won't only be talking to figures in the fashion industry, but also to people who understand the fragility of our planet from a different perspective. I was in East London last week with James Monnington, a freediving photographer and expert in marine ecology. He gave me a unique insight into how important it really is to protect our oceans and all that resides under the surface. We hope you enjoy listening.
2: I think I was so I was very, very into swimming when I was young. I was really, really late into competitive swimming, uh, which, from a very young age, through till being about sixteen or seventeen, which I think just. Makes you really, really comfy in the water, so it's immediately a more inviting thing. And then just kind of natural fascination with it. My dad's a really big fisherman, and we always had these books lying around the house, kind of like um, where divers have gone down and photographed wrecks in the English Channel. It's so super murky and depressing looking. And the idea is that fishermen could pour through these and understand where best to place, you know, their hooks or whatever to catch conger eels and things. And I remember just loving, loving those books and just going through and just seeing this other world it was so scary mm. um and just yeah it's so different that combined with my parents went to Israel when they were when I was really young I think I, was, I, think I went with them I was one or something and dad had like a disposable camera and just shot so much just like point and shoot 35 mil really pretty photographs of reef fish in Israel and uh that I just used to spend hours and hours and hours flicking through that photo album, you know, the kind of concertina-style photo albums, just mind-blown every time. Mm. Then, I guess I got into scuba diving on and off. I tried it in my teens, but it wasn't something I really had time to get into.
0: It might be difficult for you to talk about, um, but I think it's necessary to touch on the fact that you started as a scuba diver, and then... Is it fair to say not out of your own choice then move towards free diving? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so I was working on a project in the Philippines looking at the way that thresher sharks hunt sardines, funnily enough. so What
0: kind of size is a thresher shark, um, just to give a bit of scale?
2: Uh, maybe like three three metres-ish. Okay. So pelagic threshers are the ones we're working on there. There's a few different types of thresher shark. So they have a really, really long tail that they use to, to whip and stun pro. So working on this project is absolutely amazing. Diving every day, three times a day, on this beautiful dive site with this huge tower of sardines. And the sharks would just, would just kind of dart in out of the blue, carve out a smaller group of sardines, disappear into the blue again, come flying back in, kind of halt immediately and whip the sardines with their, with their tail. And then the sardines just kind of float around, stunned, and the sharks just chomp around and eat them up. Incredible. And the particular way that the sharks were were breaking themselves, like to to stop them their motion and cause the tail to move forward, was completely different to what people had supposed was the way they did it. So people always thought that it was a kind of lateral, sideways whip. It's getting quite technical.
0: (laughs) No, no, I'm you've got yeah, I'm I'm hooked. (laughs)
2: Okay, good. Um, Yeah, but actually, what they were doing was was charging in. Dipping their pectoral fins and the head down and whipping with their tail over the head like a scorpion, which really was hadn't been even supposed as a way of doing it, let alone been observed. So we spoke to the guy who was running the project, and he said, "Just film it, film it, film it. Please get as much data as we can." So we we're diving quite aggressively three times a day. It was quite a deep site, so just scuba diving. And,
1: How deep would you say you were? Um, it's
2: about it's about 40 ish, 40 meters. Oh um, so it's still within recreational limits, but probably not the sort of dives you'd be doing every day for weeks and weeks on end if you were just doing it recreationally. And, uh, yeah, at the end of one of the dives, came up, felt really strange, kind of fizzing, uh, got out of the water, felt really weak, my vision went funny, and you sort of know it's the bends, and it feels... It's often this lingering doubt that you have when you dive, when you scuba dive a lot. It's, oh, is that? Because the symptoms of the bends, the the lesser symptoms, are also the symptoms of just going diving. You feel a bit tired, your muscles ache. It was such a profound feeling that it went well beyond that. Especially the the vision thing, the visual distortions were quite
0: Did you know in that moment? Yeah,
2: yeah. And then I stupidly tried to... I sort of delayed doing anything about it because I tried to convince myself I didn't have it. I left it like three days and went again and it came back really bad much worse than the first time then, then that time I was so weak that I had to come out and be put on pure oxygen and
0: you then into the decompression chamber exactly what Benz is because I before reading about you also wasn't aware Sure.
2: Of it so uh, basically when you when you're diving um, because you're in a, a pressurised environment higher than ambient pressure you get a very high um, concentration of nitrogen dissolved in your blood so it's in solution in your blood As you come back up from a dive, the nitrogen comes out of solution and forms small bubbles, which usually just disperse and dissipate within your bloodstream, across the lungs. But sometimes maybe you come up too fast, sometimes just because your condition's a bit low, and sometimes because you're unlucky, some of those bubbles can meet and form bigger bubbles. And if you end up with bubbles in your bloodstream, they can block or occlude blood flow to certain parts of your body where you you really need blood, like your spine and your brain, which I think is where it got with me. The, The issue with it is that once you've occluded blood flow from nervous tissue like that, it forms scar tissue. And for whatever reason, that scar tissue is sticky to bubbles. So once you've formed that scar tissue, you're much more likely to get decompression sickness or the bends a second time.
0: And it could have then been a lot worse.
2: Yeah. And it's just somewhere, you know, when you've had a lucky escape, it's something you don't want to to revisit. And, th- and the thing is, I still I do still scuba dive quite a lot, but I can't be useful on on a research project.
0: How does freediving work then? Because in my head, that seems incredibly different to scuba diving, mainly because you don't have a tank strapped onto your back.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so freediving... Th- I'd actually... So freediving is essentially uh, using kind of relaxation techniques to, to slow your heart rate down and reach a state in which you can hold your breath for a very long time and swim down quite deep in the water so even an average free diver probably goes deeper than a recreational scuba diver so yeah so recreational limit for scuba divers is 40 metres and yeah most most good free divers or to good free divers would do that um,
0: <clears throat> how many do you hit normally how many meters do you go down
2: Mm. for me like my max is about 36 meters i think but if i'm if i'm taking photographs never really more than 20 there's not enough light anyway and also when you're carrying a huge camera rig with you it's just it's really hard to relax enough to drag the thing down
0: so you're essentially relaxing your breathing so that you're able to hold your breath for a max amount of time Mm -hmm. and then Is there a technique when you go down in the water to releasing the oxygen
1: slowly? Or do you hold it until you've got to a limit and then just let it all out?
2: So basically, because you have... You fill your lungs on the surface at atmospheric pressure, and then as you go down... So say you get to um, 10 metres, it's double the pressure, so your lungs are crushed to half the size. And then down another 10 metres, they're crushed to... You do the maths, I think it's like a third of the size, somewhere around there. But all you've got in your lungs, anyway, is a breath full of air from the surface. So even if you didn't lose any air from just trickling bubbles out of your mouth or out of your nose, um, equalizing the mask, you have to push air into your mask to stop it sort of crushing onto your face as you go down. As you come back up, you just feel your lungs just kind of reinflate to a comfortable level. The difference with scuba diving is that at, at say, 10 metres, when my lungs would be crushed to half the size when I was free diving, is that I would then fill the lung with air from the tank at ambient pressure at 10 metres. So it's quite involved, but it essentially means that you're breathing gases at much higher concentrations and a lot more of the gases in your lungs, which is what causes so much nitrogen to get into your blood Okay. when you're, when you're scuba
0: diving. Are there health risks? Obviously, apart from uh, running out of oxygen, but are there health risks with freediving that are kind of on the scuba diving level?
2: Yeah, so so there are. I guess there are there are health risks, and then there are hazards associated with the sport itself. So one of the main hazards with the sport is that you can pass out, and if someone isn't there to to rescue you, you just it happens quite a lot to spearfishermen that they that you. You're on the surface, you roll over and you drown, basically. Even if you're, you've already got to the top, you pass out, you roll over face down and, and you drown. But it's very easy to avoid, you never dive alone.
0: Do you always dive with someone else?
2: Y- yeah. <laughs> if I, I, ha- I do go out snorkelling on my own, but I wouldn't ever really do a breath hold. I might swim down a couple of metres to photograph something, but I wouldn't go deep and I wouldn't really hold my breath for longer than 30 seconds or something. It's just too easy. You, you feel you feel it. You can feel it coming. Sometimes with free diving, you get lightheaded, and you know you're quite close to the limit.
0: But in terms of actually doing the photography underwater, it must be easier to do it when free diving because you're. I mean, obviously, you have the camera, but you're you're much freer in your shoulders because you don't have a tank strapped to your back. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, in terms of your profession, with regard to photography, it must actually free diving must l- lend itself better to that.
2: Yeah, definitely. So, for in terms, so there are a few things. Mobility is definitely one of them. It's really nice to, to feel so kind of fluid and a bit more like one of the animals in the ocean when you're freediving. That definitely helps. You're really, really quiet. And because you don't have lots of metal and weird equipment on you, you're not as intimidating to the wildlife. And they tend to be, I found them much more curious of me when I'm freediving. Animals will approach you. And you can you can also just get a bit more in tune with what they're doing. You can hear fish making noises, things which you never you never hear when you're scuba diving. It's, I don't know if you're scuba dive, but it's so noisy. That just constantly, the whole way through. Um, so it's amazing for that. And just kind of feeling the state it puts you in, you can, because you naturally have to induce this state of
0: relaxation.
2: Relaxation. I'm loath to say it's sort of zen, but it's something like that um it, it just makes you a bit indifferent to what's happening around you in quite a nice way and i think the animals sense that you're not you don't know, feel so much like a tourist who's driving some equipment through the ocean you're just something that's there and you feel like you've melted into the water somehow
0: what's your most emotive contact that you've had with an animal in the ocean so far
2: <laughs> um I basically can't see dolphins without crying. There's something wrong with me. Like, every time I see them, it's like, oh, oh God, they're just, they're so free. <laughs> and it's like, look, there's such a cliche, but you do, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. So whenever I see dolphins, it's always mind-blowing. Um, I was just in, I was in Mexico in November uh, last year, and we're photographing marlin hunting bait balls. And um, we've been searching for, like, three days, spent so much time offshore on this, really really quite uncomfortable little fishing boat and had nothing you're just looking to do that you're looking basically for birds because the birds follow the bait balls around and try and pick up the scraps that are left over by the marlin and the other animals we saw nothing and just at the end of the last day so the third day we saw quite a big group of birds and the captain of the boat, the boat who's an ex-fisherman suddenly got very excited and you could feel something was happening drove over really fast and the water was almost boiling and uh, you you got in you could just instantly feel the electricity in the water like something just felt crazy about it and there were marlin flying around so they, these like giant swordfish basically flying around everywhere a huge bait ball of, um, we call them sardines but they were actually mackerel I think
0: Is a bait ball just a massive school of fish that's created a ball in itself?
2: Yeah and, and, and at some point once the, once the fish aggregate like that they start to behave almost as as one and so that's when you really a bait ball becomes really beautiful is when it has this kind of like a super organism type kind of feel it's to it a school
0: of fish moving as a school of fish word yeah exactly
2: yeah and um so yeah it was already incredible there's there some huge sea lions there feeding on the bait ball as well so about 50 mile in sea lions everywhere and uh, i was very close to the bait ball probably like five foot or something and a uh, a bride's whale just emerged out of nowhere from from beneath me with a mouth open, it just took this huge gulp out of the out of the bait ball and swam past me. And this thing's enormous. Um, I'd never seen a whale whilst I'd been in the water before, and uh, it was. I mean, I, I couldn't sleep properly for, for weeks afterwards. Every time I shut my eyes, it was like, oh, the whale.
0: Was there any part of you when that was? happening? <laughs> I know that sounds weird. No, I'm. When you tell me that story, I just think. But what if his. Gulp had been slightly bigger and he'd swallowed you up with it. I mean, that could theoretically have happened.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Like, one of the guys we were with had to actually push himself. He actually, I mean, when Golden Rule has never touched the wildlife, but he had to push himself off the side of the whale to kind of get clear of it. Uh, it was close, but I feel like it's fine. And, you know, the, I, they, it seems like they're aware of you. It doesn't feel like they're completely different to you.
0: And I think doing what you do, you can't enter it being scared of the ocean. Yeah. You kind of have to uh, adapt, but also be respectful of the of the wildlife that exists. That's the key thing. Yeah. Because you're you're a guest in their in their territory. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. And I mean, we'll touch on that later, but we have enough ocean plastics intruding where they live already. That we don't need humans.
2: Yeah, definitely and you see, you know, I've seen some ecotourism gone wrong in quite a few places.
0: In what sense?
2: So, actually thinking about Mexico, the other side so that the situation I described was uh was Pacific side. So Caribbean side has a really big um tourism industry built around whale shark sightings. And uh, I went, this was probably a decade ago or something now. But when, I've never seen a whale shark in the wild, was really excited, went out on this boat to find probably 15 or 20 other boats, each with about 20 tourists on them, um, surrounding whale sharks. And There is some guidance from the, Me- the Mexican government on how they should be operating, and for the most part, I think they are following that guidance, and it's to do with how many boats are allowed to follow one shark, how many people are allowed to get in the water at any one time.
0: How... Um, what kind of size is a whale shark? If we to just put it into perspective,
2: mm, they're they're big, six meters maybe. these ones were they I think they can get a bit bigger than that. they but they're you know they're they're um, planktivorous, so they just eat kind of krill and things. Um, and it's just a bit horrific, grotesque to see, and you've like a zoo. I, 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 yeah, and everyone's gone there for the same experience, and everyone has. Good. In- and virtuous intentions I think for the most part but there's something about it that doesn't feel quite right it doesn't feel wild at all and there's no way that that, the behaviour of that shark isn't being affected but the flip side of that is that a lot of people running those tourism ventures are ex-fishermen and whale sharks had previously been hunted So, so it has been a good example of how to use the financial argument for tourism to combat issues with illegal fishing.
0: Yeah, because curiosity obviously will make people go into the territory of the sharks that maybe they shouldn't. But it's very hard if, if it's the only time in your life that you'll see it that you can't. You maybe maybe you don't want to get closer. I personally, I find I would find that a bit scary. But um.
2: <laughs> but no, yeah. It's that maybe thing. I need to
0: go uh, free diving. <laughs> it, it,
2: you're. It's it's that thing. Of nobody has. Nobody really has a right to it. And certainly, nobody has more of a right to it than other people. As long as everyone is being respectful, then just because you spend a lot of time in the ocean doesn't give you more of a right over that experience than someone who's just on holiday. And but wants you perhaps
0: to. understand that animals are better, which is a, which is then a factor, I guess. Yeah. Have you had any situations where you've been genuinely scared?
2: Um, I was terrified when I got the burns. but yeah I assume you mean with regards to I mean
0: with regards to animals but also I guess with the way the water moves if it's too stormy I guess I'm guessing you don't you don't go out
2: no not me no no I think usually pretty sensible about it and you don't if I'm doing anything like a shark dive something like that I'll usually go with people who are very experienced at diving with that particular species in that particular area because they all behave differently um just take your time figure out what the animals are doing don't get in unless it feels right
0: and a shark is it ever your concern that a shark could just come up from behind you and nip your toe off or something
2: <laughs> um,
0: maybe I've seen Jaws too many times
2: I think you do so I, the I get, you get in the water. <laughs> I, I surf a lot and I get shark fear when I surf mm. I don't really get shark fear when I'm in. usually I'm looking for sharks and excited to see sharks if I'm diving I don't want to see a shark if I'm surfing and there is that kind of, because you're out of the water and you can't really see past the threshold of underwater to air, I have those thoughts come, in, come to have your you head, s- Have
0: you surfed and saw, seen a shark close to your surfboard before? No.
2: Okay. No. no, it's completely, um, I'm, it's completely unjustified by what I'm saying.
0: No, it's a, <laughs> Well, they, sharks think that humans on um, surfboards look like, is it dolphins? From underneath, they look like an animal. I can't remember. Yeah,
2: I think, they, I, th- I think they, I think they think the silhouette represents like a seal. Yeah. As especially like um, I think in South Africa where you've got white sharks that feed on fur seals and things. Yeah, I think there's some mistaken identity issues there, but really the numbers are very small, and it doesn't. And sharks don't tend to attack divers. It's a big animal. You're in its environment and sure. it's just a risk you take I guess I, th- I think the risk is genuinely very small
0: I'd like to talk a bit about your photography um, besides obviously um, it's given art form what do you hope to achieve with your photography or what, what are you achieving at the moment do you think through, through the imagery that you're, that you're making underwater
2: <clears throat> ok good question uh, do I have an answer um i so th- i think the first thing is i i kind of do it compulsively it's not pre- i mean obviously it's premeditated in the sense that i've set out to shoot underwater stuff in black and white but it's, it's i just do it to, it's just seemed like the right thing to do
0: why the like, decision uh to shoot in black and white because obviously when looking most of the photography is very high resolution um very sharp colours but I, I also kind of assume that most of the time it's not even like that under yeah, the water yeah
2: that's exactly right I think I think part of the attraction of black and white for me is that it's a it feels like quite an honest representation of how it the experience of being underwater in the types of places that I dive there are parts of there are times when you're in the ocean and it can be quite intimidating and it's big and the scale is is quite um, humbling and I feel like Black and white, and kind of very wide shots that don't like force perspective too much, and try and make the subject seem really bright and clear. Um, it communicates that feeling a bit more. So I think really it's it's partly just to. There's nothing that makes me happy being in the ocean, diving, and it's really it's just trying to communicate that that feeling to people. Nothing really beyond. I'd like to say it's, it's a kind of virtuous escapade designed to help engender a sense of responsibility and love for the I ocean. think it does that
0: automatically though
2: yeah I, I think if you, if you just stick to what you want, the reason I want to do it is because I love it and hopefully that's enough, if I can make if I can communicate some of that passion then let that go where it wants to go
0: what are your dreams over the next years with not only with your photography but also with your diving what what do you how do you see yourself let's say in 5 years time in terms of this this branch of your career
2: um, that's I... a scary question <laughs> i listened to
0: myself say that and i said i do not want to be asked that question so mean <laughs> such a mean <laughs> question
2: in terms of the photography i would like to start doing specific projects that have a dedicated narrative to them, so more like a journalistic piece that perhaps looks at some work that scientists are doing somewhere or that some community is doing that maybe incorporates some topside and underwater photography.
0: Are there any creatures or animals or sea creatures that you haven't yet been able to photograph but would love to be able to?
2: Yeah, 100% orcas. That's, That's on the cards for next year. They're just like the biggest, baddest marine mammal they're huge and they're powerful they are I, I am a little bit afraid of them and I think you know speaking about animals that I think that I probably would be a little bit intimidated and a little bit afraid with that animals it's so intelligent and just so well equipped for eating things that are outside what do they hunt? Uh, depends on the on the population so the ones that people tend to dive with the most are in Norway and they're eating fish so they're like, they're like a fish eating population so it's a lot of supposedly safer to get in the water with them. But people get in the water with them in Mexico and those populations have been eating seals down in Pasco and things. So And there's no there have been no documented attacks ever in, in nature. Mm. Only in mm. aquariums, aquaria.
0: Well, I hope that you find an orca at some point. <laughs> um, just moving on to your PhD, because you mentioned that at the beginning, it's centred around investigating the potential synergies between offshore renewable energy and marine conservation. Yes. I hope I said that right. Very good. Offshore renewable energy structures could be viewed by some as an intruder within ocean life. Mm-hmm. What's your view on that? Because I guess it's tricky because they're there to... Obviously, create renewable energy, but then you're encroaching on ocean life in a way.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's there's no there's no getting around that. It's it's a big intrusive stru- structure or set of structures, especially on you know offshore wind farms, are enormous and they're very visible from, from land. And and it's a strange it's a strange thing to encounter one when you're when you're offshore. So I've done quite a lot of um, offshore survey work on fishing vessels, and it's an incredibly romantic thing to, 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 to steam away from land for a couple of days in search of a particular area you're supposed to be sampling in, and just see nothing but ocean and the people you're on the boat with. And there are parts of the Irish Sea where the, you really can't do that anymore. And some of the work I did a couple of years ago um, at some of the big wind farms there, it would take a day to get out to them. Yep. So you, you know you can't see anything really far offshore, just ocean. And you arrive at these things and they feel a bit like offshore cities. We arrived at this one called West of Walney at night. There's lights everywhere, there's helicopters flying in, there are service vessels moving around, it's a, there's a buzz. It feels like a city, almost. And there is something that, about that that kills the romance of the wilderness. But it's, you know, everything's about trade-off and compromise. And if, if, if those... Not to downplay the importance of wilderness... But I think that seems like a worthy trade-off if we're to decarbonise energy production, and offshore wind is looking like the main candidate for doing that. Perhaps in combination with nuclear, depending on what your views are on that. So yeah, for me, it's a for me it's a, it's a trade-off that ideally you wouldn't have to make, but I, I don't think there's an alternative.
0: This might seem like a weird question but has there been any sort of survey into the response from the ocean creatures mm-hmm. towards the farms?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean so at any point when somebody wants to build a project like this, they have to do quite a lot of investigative work to figure out the likely impact associated with their project. And there are potentially some quite difficult effects of offshore wind farms apart from the visual impact we just discussed, or the kind of impact on the sense of wilderness. So, they be, the way they construct these things, they're essentially like um, big holes. That they hammer into the seabed. So the hammering can deafen and potentially kill animals that are nearby. So there's all sorts. Because of th- the
0: frequency level.
2: Yeah, it's just so loud, and it's at the frequency that would that could deafen a dolphin or a seal, or which obviously rely to a very large degree on hearing to navigate and hunt and that sort of thing so there are are ways to mitigate that so you can employ devices to try and scare those animals away from the area before you start hammering Um, you can surround the bit you're hammering with a kind of what's called a bubble curtain so you produce bubbles on the seabed and um, basically the sound waves reach the bubbles as they move away from where you're hammering and because sound waves attenuate more quickly so they diminish more quickly in air than in water the bubbles kind of kill some of the sound and deaden the sound. So there are things you can do to to mitigate those effects, but there are issues with them. But there are also some potential additional gains for the environment apart from apart from decarbonising energy production, which is kind of what I'm looking at in, in the PhD. So I guess one of the the big pressures on the marine environment, especially in the in, in Say European waters, but really worldwide, it's bottom trawling. So, intermittently, combing the seabed for organisms, is clearly going to have a very pronounced effect on the organisms that live there, build structures there. The animals that feed on the animals that live there and build structures there, and you can see the way it might topple up the um, the food chain from there. So, when you build a wind farm, they typically have been in areas where there has been a lot of fishing, especially in the Irish Sea. There's a really big uh, fishery for scampi, it's called nephrops, it's, 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 the, it's Norway lobster, it's the species that becomes scampi as well as a few other things. When you build a wind farm, it, it comprises these, these big foundations and you've got lots of cabling on the seabed. So those two things together make it very difficult to fish within the wind farm. So what you end up with is potentially a de facto no fishing area once you've built the project because fishermen are unwilling to come in. So there's been lots of talk about whether we might start to see evidence of recovery inside offshore wind farms where fishing has been excluded, which is kind of what I'm dealing with. So I'm using satellite data to look at the distribution of fishing effort and how that changes over time in response to the construction of wind farm and then going and sampling inside the wind farms to look at the fish populations and the populations of animals that live in and on the seabed to see how they've responded. And that all kind of links up to a governance side of the PhD, which is looking at... So the UK government is keen to investigate the potential of co-locating offshore wind farms with some of their conservation obligations, in order to solve some of the conflict they have in marine spatial planning and they've already started doing this so I, I guess I'm optimistic about, about it potentially being a good solution but I'm also looking to test whether it's okay to start making that assumption already because there are, as we just discussed there are obviously downsides to these projects as well as potential upsides so we can't just blindly assume that it's going to work.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with people's industries and livelihood. I guess it's a it's a difficult conversation to have. Um, but uh, many would argue very necessary, and as you said, sacrifices. It's necessary for sacrifices to be made. Is that always a discussion between the fishermen community and the builders of the of the offshore wind farms, or is that something that the yeah, news so is distributed and then the fishermen have to accept
2: it, it it's it's a very complicated process, it depends on where, where the project is and who's involved which kind of bodies that administrate fishing there are involved, I think it can lead to quite big compensation claims which affects how these projects play out sometimes there's potential for employment relating to the project itself so as a lot of fishermen become guard vessels for these types of projects but it's only a small proportion of who is likely to be fishing there in the first place and then there are other potential benefits for fishermen so some of the work i've been doing is looking at whether um so when you when you build one of these uh these poles that supports the turbine you surround the bottom with lots of rock to basically stabilize the structure and stop the sediment surrounding it getting winnowed away by tidal action um So something I've been doing is looking at lobster populations inside those big areas of rock. So we've got these wind farms in areas of sandy or muddy seabed, where you previously have no lobsters at all. Suddenly you've got hundreds of lobsters associated with these turbine foundations. So there is potential there to set up alternative fisheries. So perhaps somebody who's been excluded from doing their trawling could start lobster potting, for example, inside a wind farm. So there's definitely potential synergistic solutions... But the conversation isn't always um, aligned in that
0: way. With their interests, necessarily. Yeah. As we sit here, I think it's very important to talk about the increasing number of ocean plastics in our oceans. Is that something that you have... Because you haven't mentioned it thus far, that's why I'm Mm. kind of wondering whether it's something that you haven't come into contact with so much. Uh, do you find that ocean plastic waste is something that you've seen a lot when free diving?
2: I think yeah I mean probably half the dives I've ever done you see something floating around.
0: Half when, the dives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a which massive is, amount. Yeah, which
2: is quite tragic. It's and and then surfing even more so you know when you're on the beaches where it all gets washed up it's incredibly evident. Which is um
0: you strike me as an optimistic person which is perhaps then why <laughs> you didn't mention the, the ocean plastic because in my head it didn't even feature and then you come crashing back to reality when you think about the different energy s- sources we now have to put into place And
2: yeah and I think I th- I mean, plastics are inextricably linked to the hydrocarbon industry it's it's a byproduct of you know we, we produce it from oil that we suck out of the ground in the sea so the, the sooner we move away from Hydrocarbon based fuels, and we can also move away from plastics at the same time. I think, um, why do I. It, I guess it's interesting that you've picked up that I haven't mentioned it. Why haven't I mentioned it? For me, I think it's. I'm absolutely amazed by the way the public's rallied around it, it r- I rallied around the issue of marine plastics, and um, it's 100% a fantastic thing. And it's obviously happened because it's such a visible and tangible way of interpreting the way that our actions influence the environment around us, because you can literally see the type of thing that you drink at home. You know, a plastic bottle you might get out of the fridge at home or something, washed up on the beach that you like to go surfing at or something. So it's, it's just such a direct link, which is great. But I think the... What, what I hope is that this is that the plastics issue the way that people have rallied around it is just step one of people realising that their actions have very profound effects on the environment and the ocean marine environment and there are just so many other things going on in the sea apart from marine plastics you know for, for me <laughs> without sounding uh, over overzealous I think for me somebody who's very very concerned about marine plastics should also be worrying about overfishing And habitat destruction relates to overfishing and apply that to. If they're applying plastics to their decision making process in what they buy and what they choose to incorporate in their lifestyle, they should be thinking the exact same thing about the sort of food they buy. That for me is a. Overfishing is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, issue. You're right, I'm an optimistic person, and that maybe I just put a bit of a negative slant on it. I am optimistic about it, it's just I hope that we we can all recognise ocean plastics as being part of the issue part of a much wider issue around how humans affect the environment Um, and again a big part of that is about decarbonisation of energy you know global warming and ocean acidification that goes alongside that are two two additional really really quite important threats facing the ocean that it's all interplaying together you know something that's sick with five different diseases or more, is going to be in a lot more trouble than something that's sick than one. And I think that's what we need to understand, is that the ocean is sick with a lot of diseases.
0: I think there's also definitely something to be said, that fish are under the sea, and ocean plastics <laughs> are on top of the sea. Yeah. Like you said, it's a tangible, tangible thing. As much as I love sitting and looking at the rooftops of Hackney, the top of this very beautiful <laughs> building, it is also freezing yeah, it's cold. It is We should probably... Eat. Bring it to an end but thank you so much
2: my pleasure thank you very much for having me and uh, I should say thanks to Robin and James for personal effects for hosting us in this studio oh yeah
1: studio. of course in this wonderful studio we hope you enjoyed our chat with James check out his Instagram to see his work follow Sardine Talks on Soundcloud and iTunes for upcoming episodes and previous conversations ratings and reviews make a big difference to sharing these ideas we'd love to hear your thoughts